Well, it's good to be with you folks this morning in the sense of our pastor who is on sabbatical for this month uh, through May 9th. So we uh, hope that in prayer, our, heart, our heart and prayers are with him as he is able to minister to himself and enjoy some relaxation and time in the word as well. <clears throat> it's a wonderful opportunity he has. And so uh, I am blessed with the opportunity to minister God's word to you as well in his absence for, I think, three of the next four weeks. And today we're going we're to actually finish our series through Romans 8 in this time. So we'll be in Romans 8 again this morning. Now, Romans 8 has often been called the chapter of the Holy Spirit. And yet, as we've moved together through this chapter over the last number of months or so, piecemeal here and there, perhaps you've been thinking, oh, I, I haven't learned much about the Holy Spirit yet. And there's a reason for that, I think. Just like in our day-to-day life, the Spirit operates behind the scenes, even in Romans 8. Though the Spirit is all over this grand chapter, he's not prominent. He's operating behind the scenes, as it were. Now, this chapter in Romans 8 is not actually about the Holy Spirit, and yet he's mentioned in 19 of its 39 verses. Even still, with all those mentions, we learn very little about who he is. Paul gives little description about the person of the Spirit. Yet if we look carefully, we see everywhere in this chapter what the Holy Spirit does. But again, he is the unsung hero of this chapter, going relatively unnoticed as we journey along, though his fingerprints are everywhere. Well, that changes today as we enter Romans 8, verses 26 and 27. Here we're going to see the ministry of the Spirit in full force, and it cannot be ignored. And this passage really rounds off, highlights, and encapsulates the Holy Spirit's ministry. After verse 27, the Spirit is not mentioned again in this chapter. In one sense, this is his, his grand crescendo before exiting stage right. But Paul, Paul doesn't play it up like that. The Spirit and his ministry are far too humble for center stage since his goal is to bring glory to the Father and to the Son and not himself. Rather, Paul, Paul casually brings up this teaching for us out of necessity for you and me. This is something we must know. Our contentment and comfort in this broken life and our hope for the future are grounded in these great truths. As you well know, the Spirit has been at work in your life since the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. At the moment of your salvation, the Spirit quietly flooded every fiber of your being and nothing was left Nothing was left untouched by the Spirit's presence in you. New desires, new hopes, new aspirations, new goals, new discipline, and a retuned, fine-tuned conscience were some of the instant changes wrought by his power. And there was one major area of your life that also sprung forth, and that would be prayer. Prayer. Prayer to God Almighty in heaven above. Prayer to the one who made you, who gave you life, and who gave you your spiritual rebirth. If you prayed before salvation, it was most likely perfunctory or for show or only in times of great distress. But but God does not typically listen to the prayers of unbelievers. He is sovereign and he can choose to answer any prayer that he sees fit. But we know from various scripture passages that for the most part, God ignores the prayers of of the unrighteous, but not so with those who are his children. 
Not so with his children. As we've learned in this chapter, you have the spirit of adoption and are even this moment sons and daughters of God, co-heirs with Christ. God always hears your prayers and he always takes your desires and your petitions into account. And so by the very nature of your new relationship with God through his spirit, you have become a praying person. Prayer is your regular habit, your constant go-to in times of need, and it is your daily joy to quiet your heart before your God, to praise his name, and to petition his grace. Indeed, it is the blood of Jesus that secures this ability to pray to God, and it is by his blood that we know God hears us and desires to help us. A favorite verse of many is Hebrews 4.16, which instructs us, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy And find grace to help in time of need. You see, God sits on a throne of grace, as it were. This wonderfully speaks to the approachability of our God. That he is quick to forgive, quick to overlook our faults, and quick to encourage our drooping hands and our weak knees. Now his throne is unlike other thrones. Recall Esther, right? How she feared for her life before approaching King Ahasuerus on his throne. If he did not raise his scepter to welcome her... She will be put to death. You and I today cannot just march into President Donald Trump's office, right, and request a hearing. We cannot just share our thoughts with him and petition his assistance. That's not how things work on earth. But in heaven, God rules from a throne of grace. and We can daily come to him. Better than that, we can come to him every hour and every minute, and we will not be cast out. What a gracious and kind God we serve and live for. That his ear is open to us every moment of every day. And better than that, he longs for you to come to him in prayer. Not only is his throne room open like a boss that might have an open door policy, but he has told us again and again in his word to seek him, to know him, to come before his presence in prayer. His door is always open and his voice is always calling out to you and impelling you to come. And share your thoughts and feelings and desires with him in prayer. And in today's passage, we're going to see again just how important it is for us to take advantage of such a beneficent God. And we're going to see how the active working of the Holy Spirit affects our prayers. Now, what have we seen in Romans 8 about the work of the Spirit in our life? Let's do a brief review, bring us up to speed. Verse 1, if you remember, we learned that there is no condemnation for sin. This pivotal truth is that for those in Christ Jesus, there is no longer any condemnation. It's this glorious truth that that heads our passage and we can never forget it. And then from verse two until our verses today, we see the spirit at work to confirm and secure the believer in Christ. Consider with me, just look back at verses two to four. Those verses explain how it's the law, or as we talked about then, the power, the power of the spirit that sets us free from the power of sin and death. The spirit is at work to set us free. Then in verses five through 11, we learn that it's the spirit who changes our very nature and our mindset. And it's in that light that in verses 12 to 13, we are charged to put to death the deeds of the body. And there we also learn that it's the Holy Spirit who empowers us to do just that. It's the spirit who gives us the power to put those things to death. Verses 14 to 17 then reveal it's the spirit who leads us as God's children and it's by the spirit that we're adopted as God's children. 
And then on top of that, in verses 18 to 25, we learn that it's the Spirit who secures our future glory and gives us hope amidst our present sufferings. And so the Spirit has been at work in you from the moment you were pronounced justified. As soon as you were declared not guilty and received your no condemnation status in Christ, the Spirit has been enabling you, enacting changes in you, and preparing you for the future glory. But there's more, as our text reveals today. The Holy Spirit is praying for you. The Holy Spirit is praying for you. Yes, dear friends, the Holy Spirit, the one residing in your heart right now, as you sit in these padded pews, that Spirit, he prays for you. And what an incredible ministry of prayer he has. In today's passage, we learn that the Holy Spirit's prayers and our prayers are joined together with gorilla glue, that kind of glue that nothing can unfasten. His whole person and power are behind and entwined in every prayer we make. He is your best prayer partner. That is what we must see today. And that is what we'll find in just two verses from Romans 8. We'll learn that understanding the Spirit's ministry of prayer empowers your comfort and hope amidst weakness. Understanding the Spirit's ministry of prayer empowers your comfort and hope amidst weakness. Now, if you're not already there, turn to Romans 8, verses 26 and 27. And as we look into this text, you'll instantly see this prayer ministry of the Spirit. It's lucid and unmistakable. We'll start off with a few things about the Holy Spirit and then we'll, uh, before we exegete and unveil this ministry of intercession. But let's begin by reading our text. And given that it's so short, and we've been a little bit since we've been in Romans 8, we're going to back up to verse 18 and read all the way down through verse 30. Our verses today will come from 26 and 27, but we'll start in verse 18. God's word says thus, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we per with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. 
sends the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts. Let us, before we dive into this text, just briefly open in a word of prayer. Lord God, we come before your text. God, may our hearts be ready to receive what you would have for us, God, this text that your spirit inspired, inspired about himself, that we might know this unique and special and important ministry of his. God, may you press this truth upon our hearts and minds that we may greater live for your glory and give you even greater praise. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, we'll consider just two verses today and we'll begin with verse 26. Verse 26, and we'll start with the power of the Spirit. If you're taking notes, you've got a little note sheet in your bulletin there. Point number one is the power of the Spirit. Now the Spirit's power is most clearly seen here in juxtaposition with our weakness. With our weakness. Look again at verse 26. I'll read it again. It says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Friends, we live in a world and a culture that praises human strength and human ability. The smartest or the best looking or those with the greatest cunning, those rise to the top. The best athletes, they make millions, millions of dollars. We cheer for winners and we forget losers. All college basketball fans will remember for a long time that Villanova won the March Madness tournament, right? But everyone will soon forget who took second place, except for Ted Way. Sorry, Ted. Maybe Michigan can do it next year, right? The world lives on power, strength, boldness, victory. But have you ever noticed how often Jesus Christ and his gospel comes to the aid of those who are weak? Or have you considered how God reaches out to the downcast and the lowly for rescue? Psalm 34, 18 reads, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Have you thought of Jesus who ministered for three years to those who are weak and infirm? The proud and the strong, those, those were not his main pursuit. Even his disciples, Jesus knew, were weak. In the key point redemptive history in the Garden of Gethsemane, they proved they were men beset with weakness. Jesus tenderly but truly points this out when he found them sleeping. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Paul's ministry himself, Paul again, is, is a, his ministry is again and again concerned with those who are weak. Weak people are always on, God, on Paul's mind. Consider just one example, Romans chapter 14, how he wants the strong Christians to look out for the weak Christians. He talks again and again about, him, about ministering amidst his own weaknesses, right? Paul was weak himself. He knew himself to be a weak man. Paul saw himself as weak. He even said, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. And even in our text today, Romans 8.26, Paul refers to this as our weaknesses, lumping himself in. He knows he is weak. But do you? Have you recognized you are weak? You and I are often tempted to strive to be strong, to throw our lot in with the worldly ideal of strength and power. Spiritually, some of us may think we are one step away from being spiritual giants. 
Or perhaps you're so bold as to think that you've arrived spiritually and there's no more growth necessary and you just come here for the food and fellowship. You're practically glorified already. Right? But none of us, none of us are spiritual giants. We're all so far from that. It'd be so much better if we'd see ourselves as spiritual pygmies. Do you feel, do you feel this weakness in yourself? Have you read your Bible as much as you've wanted to in the past month? Have you spent much time in prayer every day over the last week? When was the last time you fasted and prayed long over something? How often are you in prayer for 30 or 60 minutes more or more at a time? How many sins are you aware of committing just since Thursday? Or are you, you're not even aware of committing? Have you cast every present anxiety of yours on the Lord? Have you worshipped him in spirit and truth, even this morning? Or did we just sing the words without real comprehension or heart passion? Or consider this, how many souls have heard the good news of salvation pass through your lips lately? I by no means am seeking to chastise you. I'm guilty of these things myself. You see, we are weak. And anyone who thinks otherwise of themselves is foolish. Friends, God's, God knows we are weak. And that's what makes the Spirit's power so amazing. Because it is applied to us in our very weakness. Jesus told Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My power is made perfect in weakness. Likewise, we learn in our passage today that in our weakness, the Spirit and His power come to our aid. They come to our aid. Look with me into our text, verse 26. It begins, In the same way the Spirit also helps in our weakness. Now in that same way, I just want to cover this real quick, in that same way is pulling back to the previous passage. And though the connection is not super clear, I believe it's this. I believe this connection this way. Just as our hope, our eager anticipation that we talked about last time, just as that eager anticipation helps you and I wait for our final salvation, so does the Spirit help us in our weaknesses as we wait. This is about the help of the Spirit. As we've just talked about, we're loaded with weakness in this life. And so we eagerly anticipate the future glory with great groans, verse 23, where our adoption will be completed and our bodies will be redeemed. And so as we wait, the Spirit helps us, verse 26 says. He comes to our aid. He helps us. Now the verb translated here simply in the NASB, simply as helps, is a unique word in Greek. It's not a compound word. It's actually a double compound word. It's three words put together. The root word means to take, and then compounded onto it are the Greek words meaning with and on behalf of, and all three forming one word. The idea is to take on something with you and on behalf of you. So if I were to help, I would take it on myself and on your behalf. To translate it simply, we could say to come to our aid or joining with to help. And that's what the Spirit does. He knows our weakness and he comes to our aid. He joins with us to help. But I want you to notice something else in this passage. Look again at this first phrase, verse 26. It says, in the same way, the Spirit also removes our weakness. Oh, do you notice? Didn't read that right. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that the Spirit removes it. So why do so many Christians Live like that's the Spirit's role, to remove weakness. Though the Spirit surely has the power to remove our weaknesses, he very often does not. 
God has a plan for everything we go through, friends. We must remember that God is sovereign over every second of our lives. There is no maverick moment that strays outside his plan. God has even your weakness and even your trials that you're facing today in his perfect plan. The Spirit knows that. And so he does not swoop in to remove you from God's perfect plan, but to help you as you're called to live out that perfect plan. Think of it. So many of our prayers may be misdirected. We often pray, God, get me out of this or through this or over this, ASAP. But perhaps we should be praying, God, help me in this to learn and grow in every way you've designed for me. Help me by your spirit to make the most out of this trial and draw nearer to you. Increase my faith. If it be your will, O Lord, remove this trial from me. But not my will, O Lord, but yours. Friends, the spirit is not in us in order to remove our trials, but to help us in our trials. And such a powerful being as the Holy Spirit is ever so capable of helping. He is so capable of helping. His power and his works are so great. I found this list of 16 ways the Holy Spirit's power is at work. 16 ways the Holy Spirit's power works. Do not try to write it down. I'm going to blow through it. You'll never get it past the first one. This comes from an article by author Jay Wegter. I'm just going to read them quickly. 16 ways the Holy Spirit's power is at work. The first two are in the world, in the world and the last 14 are in the believer. One, the Holy Spirit restrains the world from greater lawlessness. 2 Thessalonians 2.6. Two, he convicts and rebukes the world of sin and judgment. John 16.8-11. He regenerates believers. Titus 3.4-7. He baptizes the believing sinner into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12.12-13. 12, 12 he sanctifies believers, setting them apart unto holiness. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. He seals believers for the day of redemption. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, 7. He indwells the believer. Romans 8, 9 to 11. He fills and controls the believer. Ephesians 5, 18. He produces Christian service through the gifts that he gives believers. Number 10. The Spirit produces Christian character and spiritual fruit. Galatians 5, 22 to 24. He promotes praise and thanksgiving. Ephesians 5, 18 to 20. He leads the believer in exercising faith, love, and obedience, Romans 8, 14. He energizes us in our fight against sin, Romans 8, 10 to 13. He grants us assurance of salvation, Romans 8, 16 to 17. He teaches us, granting us understanding of God's word, 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 13. And lastly, he empowers our obedience in our witness and in our ministries, Acts 1, 8. You and I may be weak, but he is strong. He is strong. And so we can know and trust the Spirit and know that his prayers for us are powerful and they're effective. By now I hope you are convinced of his power. You are convinced of the Spirit's power. But what of his person? Who is this Spirit? Now given all the confusion that surrounded him over the past 2,000 years and beyond, and particularly the strong notion of late to regard the Holy Spirit as in just an impersonal force of God, I want to give a brief defense of his person. So that's our second point as we move in our text. The person of the Spirit. The person of the Spirit. Now we're all familiar with this phrase, right? May the force be with you. Right? 
We all instantly recognize that common phrase from Star Wars about an impersonal force that controls everything and seeks a balance in the universe. Today has become all too common to equate the Holy Spirit with the force from Star Wars, that kind of idea, an impersonal force emanating from God to carry out his will. Many people and entire cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses relegate him just to an impersonal force, something that emanates from God. I'm going to quote straight from the Jehovah's Witness website. This is the very first paragraph. They say, what is the Holy Spirit? They don't say who. They say, what is the Holy Spirit? Very first paragraph answers this. The Holy Spirit, lowercase by the way, small h, small s, the Holy Spirit is God's power in action, his active force. God sends out his spirit by projecting his energy to any place to accomplish his will. End quote. Such statements held in some form by many people other than Jehovah's Witnesses ashamedly deny the personhood of the spirit. They deny his person. And this is a tragedy. For the Bible, which the spirit inspired, speaks clearly of his personhood and his personality. And so they must deny Bible truths. And furthermore, if the spirit is not his own person, this is where it applies to today, if he's not his own person, the truths of Romans 8, 26, and 27 are eviscerated of meaning and of importance. The entire teaching of Paul in these two verses stands true only because the spirit is his own person, one of three in the Trinity. Now let's look quickly at biblical support for the Spirit's personhood. We can start right in our text, right in our text. Verse 26, just look down there. Verse 26 says, towards the middle endish of the verse, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. That's very clear in the Greek. The word himself is there in the Greek. It cannot be missed. Paul is clearly using it to differentiate the Spirit from God. It's emphasizing the Spirit is praying, not somebody else. Now, no, no impersonal force can make intercession. Intercessory prayer requires thought, and it requires expression, and those both require an intellect and a will. An intellect and a will. But no force, no, no projected energy, to use Jehovah's Witness terminology, has an intellect or has its own will. Each simply goes as sent by the Jedi or by the power conductor, Right? And yet we see here the spirit performing tasks that require an intellect, that require a will. He is choosing to do these things and to pray these things on your behalf. Such actions require that the spirit be a person. And this word himself helps make it clear that he cannot be confused with God the Father. Secondly, in verse 27, look down there, says that he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is. The word he at the beginning of the verse is clearly a reference to God the Father. That can't be denied. And thus the verse says that God the Father knows the mind of the Spirit. He's clearly stating that just as the hearts of man that God knows are not God's heart, right? God knows the hearts of us. Our hearts are not God's hearts. So likewise, he knows the mind of the Spirit, which cannot also be the mind of the Father. Does that make sense? If he knows our hearts, They're separate from his. If he knows the spirit's mind, it's a separate mind than God's. It's a different mind. And this such phraseology that Paul uses proves that he understands the spirit to be a separate person from God the Father. We could also look outside our verses um, at many lines of evidence. And I'll just really quickly look at a couple. Um, We're instructed in Matthew 28 to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Clearly three persons are in view here. 
We could look into the masculine pronouns used for the Holy Spirit. Many times the Greek word for spirit, which is always neuter, has a masculine pronoun attached to it. Particularly John 15, 26 and 16, 13 to 14. This, is, this kind of radical grammatical blunder does not occur elsewhere in Greek grammar because it breaks basic preschool Greek grammar rules that three-year-olds would all understand. So such a use of a masculine pronoun tacked onto a neuter word like spirit would only occur if the spirit were an actual person. Would only occur. We could also look, we won't, we could also look at the many attributes of the spirit or look again at the many works of the spirit, which could only be attributed to a personal being and not to a force. Now this evidence for his unique personhood is so strong. It's virtually impregnable. But since this is not our central topic this morning, I'll stop here on this discussion. But we need to recognize that this truth of the Spirit's personhood must be embraced if you want to find any comfort and hope in the Spirit praying on your behalf. If there's no person of the Spirit, then there are no prayers of the Spirit. But truly, there is the person of the Holy Spirit in the Godhead, and that Holy Spirit is in your heart, interceding before God on your behalf. So let's spend the rest of our time together delving into this comforting promise and mine all the precious jewels out of this passage that we can. Point number three, the prayers of the Spirit. The prayers of the Spirit. We come now and finally to the central focus of both our text and our sermon. I believe the foundation we have laid regarding our weakness, the Spirit's power, and the Spirit's person will give significantly greater depth to this wonderful, blessed truth that the Spirit himself prays for you. Let's look again at our text, just these two verses, with an eye for the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit. I'll read these two again, and we will jump into them with an eye for the prayers of the Spirit. Verse 26 says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He intercedes according to the will of God. Let's start again in verse 26 in that middle phrase, for we do not know what to pray as we should. Now, if you have an NASB version in your hands, as I do up here, perhaps you've noticed that I've been reading it, for we do not know what to pray instead of how to pray, like the NASB says. And please forgive this change of wording, but that that seems to be the better way to understand this Greek phrase. It's a difficult phrase on the whole to render into English, but almost all commentators and pretty much all Bible translators agree that Paul is saying we don't know what to pray for rather than we don't know how to pray. Only the NASB of the major translation renders it how to pray. But, but either way, either way, we all feel that we do not pray very well. Correct? We all feel that we do not pray very well. <clears throat> we often have trouble in it and struggle to pray. But as this text says, pray, we should. We should pray. Having difficulty in prayer is no excuse to cease praying. We should pray. We should go before that throne of grace. But it's not guaranteed to be easy. In fact, many times we won't even know what to say. And I I am strangely comforted by the words of John Calvin. Strangely comforted by his words. As one reads along in his Christian institutes, 
one enters his section on prayer only to find that Calvin himself struggled in prayer. There he confesses that his mind was apt to wander in prayer and that he would find himself unwittingly wasting time dwelling on things unconnected to his prayers. That's Calvin. Isn't that great news? Kind of, sort of, right? There's something strangely reassuring that if a man like Calvin struggles in his prayers and I myself a normal Christian, I'm normal in my struggle as well. I'm normal as well. And I furthermore find it encouraging that Paul, in verse 26, lumps himself in. He says, we do not know what to pray for. Paul earlier recognizes that he himself is also weak, and now that we, he recognizes that he doesn't even know what to pray for sometimes. Sometimes he even prayed for the wrong thing. Think about 2 Corinthians 12, 7-9. Paul prayed three times for a thorn in the flesh to be removed from him. But God said, no, that's not my plan for you. Or think about Moses, another man with a recorded uh, so-called failed prayer. He prayed in Deuteronomy 3 that he might enter the promised land with his people. But that was not God's plan. What, what, human, what humans could we say were more important to our spiritual heritage than Paul and Moses? And yet they often failed in knowing what to pray. If they needed the prayers of the Spirit, most certainly do we. Perhaps the only people in this room who, who don't struggle in some form or fashion in prayer are those who don't pray at all. And the, the key is not to give up, but to dig in. Everyone who does pray feels the reality of what is being said in verse 26, that there are often times in our lives when we simply don't know what to pray. We don't know what's right. We don't know what's best. We don't know what outcome will benefit the most people. There's so much we don't know when we come before the Lord in prayer. Pastor Ligon Duncan shares a story from his childhood of when his younger brother had a seizure. This younger brother was playing upstairs with another sibling, and his lips began to turn blue, his face went ashen, and then after a few moments, he suddenly fell over. He was unconscious and not breathing. This other sibling called out in a panic for mom and dad, who rushed upstairs and immediately began to administer CPR. His dad turned to Ligon and said, Lig, go down and call Dr. Wyatt. Tell her to meet us at the emergency room. Pastor Duncan recalls how he was able to make it downstairs and dial the phone number. But when the nurse came on the line at Dr. Wyatt's, all he could say was, my brother needs help. My brother needs help. And to every question that poor nurse tried to ask him, he had only one response. My brother needs help. He didn't know what to do. The situation was outside of his ability to comprehend and communicate. Sounds like you and me sometimes in our prayers, doesn't it? God, I need help. And we don't know what else to pray. Given our situation, we have no idea sometimes what to pray for. Pastor Duncan continues his story and says that at just that moment, his dad came and took the phone away and said to the nurse, nurse, this is, this is what happened and this is what we need. And Paul's saying that when we come to those moments, when the breath has been taken out of you, when you're stunned, unable to concentrate, you're numb, it's in those times that you need to take comfort. The Holy Spirit is coming to your aid. He knows exactly what you need. In your weakness, God, the Holy Spirit, comes to help you. In that moment you need it most, you can find this comfort that God, the Holy Spirit, has already come to your aid. He is praying for you 
And his prayers are exactly what needs to be communicated to the Father. As we pray falteringly, he prays perfectly. And how do we know his prayers are perfect? Verse 27 puts it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Look there, verse 27 says, He, God, who searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he, the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul is arguing here from the lesser to the greater. If God knows our hearts, both yours and mine, then surely he also knows what's on the mind of the Spirit. He also knows on the mind of the Spirit. Or we could look at this another way, actually. We could say that since God knows what's in our hearts, and since we're in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in our hearts. And so since the Spirit is there in our hearts, and God knows our hearts, then God knows the mind of the Holy Spirit who's within us. Either way you slice it, God knows exactly what the Spirit is thinking all the time. And that's good news. Why? Because the Spirit is a perfect being. And his will is always in accordance with the will of the Father. Therefore, the Spirit's prayers are always perfectly aligned with the will of God. Which is exactly what the end of our verse says. The Spirit intercedes for you and for me according to the will of God. There is nothing lost in translation between the Spirit and the Father. There's no dropped calls, no texts that fail to send, no emails that lose internet connection and delete themselves without sending. God the Father and God the Spirit are perfectly in tune with a telepathic communication that can't be cut or disrupted. Everything the Spirit asks the Father on your behalf is perfectly in keeping with God's perfect will for your life. The Spirit has perfect knowledge. And yet, we lack this knowledge of God's will. We are so finite, we're so stuck in time. And our failure to discern God's will causes us to not be able to petition God specifically or accurately or with all confidence. Sometimes, sometimes we even pray for the exact opposite of what is best. But, but we need not worry The Spirit will take the heart behind those prayers, override their misdirection, and he himself will pray for for us those very things we don't even know we need. Those things that perfectly match the will of God. Is that not a comforting truth? Does that not empower your comfort and hope in the midst of weakness? We're often so bewildered at life's events, but the Spirit is not. He knows exactly what God is doing and he prays fervently for you to God to bring that about and for it to result in your good. Which is exactly where Paul goes next in verse 28. That verse that every Christian needs to understand. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Now how is such a profound truth of verse 28 possible? How can it be that everything works out for the good of Christians? It's because the Holy Spirit is praying for you. He is interceding for you. And like it says at the end of verse 26, he is interceding with groanings that are inexpressible. The Spirit is emotionally involved in his desire to bring about good in your life. He longs for that. He yearns for that. He groans along with us. And if that's not comforting to us, I don't know what will be. The God of the universe and the person of the Holy Spirit lifts you up in prayer to God the Father, the all-powerful one who can do anything and who is sovereign over all things. What a comfort. 
What a powerful promise that this person of the Holy Spirit is engaging in prayer on your behalf. What hope we have for a bright tomorrow and a brighter eternity. And do you know what? Though our text doesn't mention it, elsewhere in scripture we learn that Jesus is also interceding on your behalf. Jesus Christ prays for you too. Hebrews 7.25 states that Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's risen from the dead and he's making intercession for you. 1 John 2.1 proclaims that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And even if you look down into our chapter, Romans 8 verse 34, just a few verses away, says this, who is the one who condemns? Rhetorical answer, answer no one. Why? Because Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Friends, you're doubly covered. You've got Christ in heaven and the spirit in your hearts praying for you. With such great resources on your side, how could things possibly not all work out for your good? Now, to be sure, Christ's intercessory work seems to be primarily about saving us from condemnation and then keeping that condemnation away from us, while the Spirit's work is about everything in between, the day-to-day life in Christ as we grow and endure the end. Both of their ministries are important. They seem to have, as the Bible talks about, a different, uh, different tact, a different thing they're covering in their prayers, but they are nonetheless both praying for you and regularly. And so it is with great confidence and great comfort that you can rest assured in Jesus that you are not condemned and in the spirit that you can face no defeat. And friends, if those two persons of the Trinity are constantly praying for you, how can you not also pray? If this ministry of intercession is their regular practice, how can it not be ours as well? I suppose one could argue, well, why not just let the spirit do all the praying? Why should I pray at all? Right? If his prayers are perfect and mine are not, why, why, why should I pray at all? Well, William Hendrickson gives four rebuttals to such a misguided mindset. First, a child of God needs to and wants to pour out his heart to God in prayer and thanksgiving. Second, the Holy Spirit prays only in the hearts of those who pray. If you're not praying, the idea is the Holy Spirit's not for you either. Three, God has commanded his people to pray and has promised to grant all such requests as are in harmony with his will. It's a great reason to pray. And fourthly, there must be many prayers that we will make which do not need to be counteracted by the Holy Spirit. Friends, we need to pray. As we pursue godliness, as we pursue Christ's likeness, let us also pursue prayer with everything we've got. As we beseech the Lord and turn to him, our prayers arise to him as a fragrant offering that's pleasing to him, Revelation 5, 8 speaks of. Even if they are weak prayers, even if they are misdirected prayers, even when we have no idea what to pray, God the Spirit hears our inexpressible groanings and prays perfectly on our behalf. And so in all circumstances, in all trials, even in all good times, let us pray. Let us make prayer our breakfast, lunch, and dinner, without which we would wither away. 
Let us make prayer our vaccine against spiritual disease, our vitamins against spiritual sickness, and our fitness routine against spiritual atrophy. And let us take great comfort and hope in knowing that we have two members of the Trinity praying to God the Father on our behalf. A wonderful thought. Now, Scotsman John Knox was a true spiritual giant, though he only stood five feet tall. We call him a giant because he was so courageous throughout his lifetime, both in his preaching and in his person. As a young minister of God's word, Knox stood beside veteran preacher George Wishart with a two-handed sword, acting as his bodyguard amidst the tumult of persecution in Scotland under the Queen Mother Mary of Guise. When Wishart was arrested and was being sent to be burned at the stake, Knox was prepared to voluntarily go into captivity and die with him. Tells you who this man is. But Wishart told Knox to stay home, for God needed another preacher to continue the work. And so Knox remained and carried on the work, becoming a powerful and influential communicator of gospel truth to the English people since he was banished from his home in Scotland. Well, later on in 1547, John Knox was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he was captured by the French. He was forced into slavery in the French galleys. And a galley is not a kitchen, by the way. It's the bottom set of a, of a boat. He would spend 19 months of his life, 19 months of his life rowing as a galley slave for the French Navy. Now, a galley slave is about as low as one can go. Below deck in a dark, dank hollow, roughly 50 galley slaves sat on long wooden benches spaced four feet apart. Six slaves shared each 10-foot bench with their ankles chained to the floor beneath them. The oars they rowed were 50 feet long, 13 feet inside the ship, 37 feet outside and going into the water. For 19 long months, pastor and preacher John Knox knew only those 13 feet of oar as he rode among 50 other slaves, forgotten. He was a piece in a machine, carrying out the will of the ship's captain, who carried out the will of the, of the leader of France, a staunch Catholic. Their missions often involved seeking to destroy or thwart the Protestant ships of England. And in such an abysmal state, God's will was not thwarted by John Knox's situation. Now, how could this be? How could God let this happen? Knox was a man of incredible ability, incredible capacity to teach others of God. Surely God would want that for him, right? But God had a purpose. The Holy Spirit was not given to Knox to remove the suffering, but to help him through it. A promise from God's word that became precious to Knox in those days of his slavery was, call on me, call on me in your day of trouble. This promise sustained him and pray he did. For those 19 months, Knox prayed. He did not lose heart. This promise from God, this call on me in your day of trouble promise was pressed upon his soul and became the basis upon which he used to write his first book, which he entitled, What True Prayer Is. 19 months, chained at the end of a 50-foot oar, God had a purpose. When God has you in your own difficult spot, what do you pray for? How can you know God's will? How can you know God's plan? Many times we can't, right? Many times we can't. 
In the thick of it, Knox could not know if God's plan was for him to die in the galleys. That could have been God's plan. At one point, Knox became very sick and almost did die. God did not rescue him after one month or or two or three. It took 19 before he was released. Afterward, Knox returned to England and continued preaching. He would later travel to Geneva and meet John Calvin and gain a friendship with him and be much helped by him. He would then uh, later in life even return to Scotland and help set up a uh, Protestant government in his home country. And he would go on to be used by God in powerful, powerful ways. But really, God, 19 months as a galley slave? What was the purpose of that? Friends, when we do not know why things are happening in a certain way and we are tempted to lose faith in God, remember that the Spirit is praying for you. And he's praying for you perfectly. He is praying for God's perfect will to be accomplished in your life. And because of that, you are empowered to find incredible comfort and hope amidst your weakness. Let us cast our cares on him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Lord God, even this prayer now is going to lack something. And Lord, I lift it up to you nonetheless because you are a good God who hears our prayers and who loves to answer them. Your will, God, is perfect and it is good for us, Lord, and we're so thankful the Holy Spirit and your Son are on our sides as we are children of yours. We are your children, Lord God. I pray for comfort and hope to abound in this congregation as we face trials, as we face difficulties, knowing that nothing is outside of your plan and that your Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is with us every step of the way, praying for us. Father, may we be encouraged, may we be helped, May we even be blessed by this ministry. May our praise to you sing higher and go further and even reach more folks with the great news of the gospel because of such a ministry of the Spirit. God, again, presses on our hearts and minds. May we never forget what you do in our lives, how you draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.